Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. When's the last time you repeated that little proverb to somebody? Has it been a while? Here's some ancient words from Solomon. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. The ancient world, of mostly agrarian society, oxen were expensive to purchase and to raise and to feed. It was a lot of work to care for them, their health and their cleanliness, and to clean up after them and keep the barn clean. Without them, without these oxen, you could save a lot of time, a lot of money, and have a nice, shiny, clean barn. The problem is, your barn would be more than shiny and clean, it would also be empty. You see, the oxen were needed to plow and to plant, to harvest, to tread and to thresh. They, the, the oxen were an integral part of the process, a, a necessary evil along the way. You had to have them in order to get the job done, but to have them, they were a lot of extra work, a lot of extra work. And so the proverb of Solomon here is really telling us that their productivity was worth their cost and their inconvenience. What they eventually produced was worth all that had to be put in. It could be similar at times in discipleship. We address the issues in our own hearts and lives as we prayerfully, humbly come to the Word of God, read and pray and ask God to continue to shape us to be more like Christ as we walk with Him. And He shows us these things in our hearts and our lives that must be attended to. And it can be hard work. In fact, Peter put it this way in his second letter. He said, um, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter said, make every effort to do those things. What does that let us know? It's not going to just happen. Showing up at church, attending a Bible study, reading your Bible, it doesn't just happen. It takes Also, it takes effort. It takes determination to engage in the process. I will submit and surrender myself to this process and will put in the work to continue to grow in my walk with Christ. So it can be hard work, this discipleship, this following Jesus. It can also be hard work when you're working with others and you're trying to bring them along and you're trying to, to make more disciples and you're trying to encourage those who maybe aren't as far down the road as you are. Paul put it this way in Colossians, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Paul talks about the effort, the hard work it was to make more disciples as he continued in his walk with God. Now the difference between oxen and making disciples is that ox, the oxen help accomplish the purpose. But with disciples, people are the purpose. They are the harvest. People don't help us with our ministry. People are our ministry. So that's a big difference, isn't it? But there's a similarity here, and that is this. 
Discipleship can be messy. Discipleship can be messy. As you and I bring our our sinful hearts and issues to the Lord and and we just walk through the challenges of life together, discipleship can be messy in in working with each other, can't it? Yeah, it can. It can be time-consuming, it can be repetitive, but it will be worth it in the end. It will be worth it in the end. It can be quite a challenge along the way. You remember that, that kindergarten teacher that was sending her children out for a recess one winter? And she looked over and that, that one little kid, he was just struggling to shove his tiny feet into these boots. And it just wasn't working. And he was hollering and yelling and stomping and pulling and it wasn't working. So she got down on her hands and knees and she struggled. She, wow, these are really tight. So she shoved and shoved and shoved. And she finally got this kid's feet into the boots. And as she was just finishing getting the second one on, he looked at her and said, yeah, these are really hard. They're not even my boots. And so she worked and did all the work to pull and grunt and groan and pull the boots off. And just as she got the second boot off, he said, yeah, they're my brother's boots. Mine have holes in them, so mom made me wear these today. (laughs) On we go with the boots, shoving and pushing and pulling and getting the boots on. And finally, she gets the boots on and says, okay. Zips up his coat, says, now where are your mittens? Oh, I didn't want to lose them, so I shoved them into the toes of my boots. (laughs) Right? Sometimes that's what working with people is like, right? And this poor lady is saying, I just wanted to teach this kid to count, right? But uh, discipleship, working with others, our own issues and bringing others along, it can be a lot of work, can't it? And yet Paul told Titus, as he left Titus on Crete to oversee the ministry of the churches there, he said the focus and the goal of ministry is to be disciples who then make more disciples, That's the point. Be disciples who make disciples. Both are hard work, but both are worth it. He went on, as we've seen in this letter, and we saw last week, to explain that discipleship works best life on life and generation to generation. Life on life and generation to generation. It is time-consuming and hard work, but it's worth it to sit with someone else and continue to help them as they study the Word and to hold them accountable and to urge them forward in the things that we're called to do as they grow to be more like Christ. Now, there are days when that gets tiring and we can get worn out and frustrated. But let me encourage you this morning as we come to the end of the, the letter from Paul to Titus that Paul knows that. And he knew that Titus was going to have days where he felt that. And that the leaders Titus was putting in place in these various churches, they were going to feel that. And Paul shares with Titus, I believe as he winds down this letter, three attitudes that are a key to this process. Three heart attitudes that are a key to this process as we walk with the Lord ourselves and as we bring others along in the process as well. And these, these, these attitudes will help us in persevering in the process of discipleship on the days when it's just a little tiring and the mittens are stuffed in the toes of the boots <laughs> or you go in to hook up the oxen and see the mess of the pen again. All right? that on those days, these three attitudes will help. So we'll turn to Titus chapter 3 this morning as we wrap up this series in the book of Titus by seeing discipleship's attitude. And let's just uh, bow in prayer and, and commit this time to the Lord as we come to His Word this morning. Father, we've been singing about these ancient words, your words. We need to hear them. 
We need to understand them, and then we need to obey them. And we pray that you would help us in all three areas of that process this morning. Help us to hear what it is you're saying to us. Help us to obey. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins this third chapter. Of course, we broke it into chapters to make it easier for us. Paul was just writing a letter. And so this letter continues now in what we have as chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul begins, he's told Titus already at the end of chapter 2, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. And then he says, now remind them of some things. He's already told them what to, told him what to t- teaching different age groups and different stages of life and settings of life. And now he says there's some things that apply to everybody and we need to continue to remind people of these things. And the grammar here when he uses the word remind is not a one-time thing. The understanding here is that it is repeatedly and persistently remind them. Time and time again. Over and over and over again. Because these things that I'm about to tell you, Paul says, are difficult and challenging. And so it'll be easy to just set those on the back burner and neglect them. After a while, it'll be easier to forget them. You need to continually remind them of these things. And this first attitude is one of humility. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, being submissive is not something that happens to you. It's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. It's something that you do. It's something that you submit yourself to the authority of another. That's on you. And Paul said, remind the people to do this. To the rulers and authorities there, they must be submissive. Submit themselves there and obey. Do it. Submit yourself. Well, that's difficult. And these aren't godly people. Really? We're supposed to submit ourselves to the rulers and authorities out there? Well, yes. That's, in fact, what Jesus did in John chapter 19, verse 11. When Jesus is standing before Pilate on trial for his very life before the cross, Pilate looks at Jesus and says, Do you not understand I have the authority to kill you? I could sentence you to death right here and right now. What did Jesus say? Jesus looked at Pilate and said, You would have no authority unless my Father in heaven gave it to you. So Jesus surrendered himself, submitted himself to the authority of Pilate, because by doing so, he was submitting himself to the authority of his father. And as Mike read for us from Philippians 2 this morning, in doing that, he was obedient and submissive even to the point of dying on a cross. Now, that's loaded in itself. But if you're following along in Philippians 2, as Mike was reading this morning, you will understand that that was brought up by Paul in his letter to the Philippians in order to use the humility, the submissiveness, the obedience of Jesus as the example for how you and I function with others. We are to have that kind of humility and surrender to that degree. That's what we're called to. You see, following Jesus involves great personal cost. Submitting to others involves great personal cost, doesn't it? We don't like that, but it needs to happen. 
You see, following Jesus, becoming his follower, salvation costs us nothing because we could never earn or achieve or purchase our forgiveness in our life, right? That's the whole point. We could not do it. It's God's mercy and grace to us. However, following Jesus at the same time costs us everything because Jesus said, you cannot call me Lord and then not do what I say. And if whoever wants to follow me must deny himself daily, take up his cross and follow me, Jesus said. So on the one hand, it costs nothing because there's nothing we can do to earn it. But on the other hand, it costs everything because it's the surrender of ourselves. And as doing that, part of that is surrendering and being submissive to the rulers and authorities out there. Now, what a week for this verse to show up. You got any plans for Thursday? Get your fancy white card in the mail? Ready to go vote in our Ontario election? And we say, seriously, we're to submit to the rulers and authorities? That's difficult. That's difficult. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for the leaders of these parties and the candidates locally. We need to pray for their own salvation. We need to pray for God's work in their lives. And we need to pray for wisdom and, and those kind of things. We need to pray ourselves for wisdom and clarity as we look at the candidates and as we look at the parties before us. There is no political party that will be on your ballot on Thursday that has for itself a platform and agenda of righteousness, saying we're going to do all we can to glorify God and help others in, in, in his name. Nobody has that party, that platform rather. No party has that platform. So what do we do? Well, we say, are there platforms and promises that are obviously evil and fly in the face of what God says? Are there those that are aggressively taking a stand against him? That gives us some direction. Are there others that will, will do things with some form of logic and integrity? We just have to pray about that for clarity for ourselves. And then we go and we vote as we prayer, prayerfully surrender the process to the Lord using the vote that has been granted to us in this part of the world. As, as some small way of being salt and light and participating in the process. But as we pray for them and then vote for them, then regardless of who wins, regardless of who wins, we submit to them. Remember after Donald Trump won the election in the States? What was the big mo movement? They had the posters and t-shirts and everything else. Not my president. Um, hello, I don't think you really know how the system works. <laughs> Maybe another civics class. <laughs> he won the election. He is your president if you're an American, right? Like that's the way this works. So we don't get to say, well, I didn't vote for whoever became premier on Thursday, so they're not my premier. Um, yeah, they are. And we are called to submit to them. And by submitting to them and obeying them, we are obeying God who put them in that position of authority. And we're called to submit to them until and unless they call us to dishonor or disobey God, and then they're on their own. But unless they're calling us to dishonor and disobey God, we are called to submit to them. And we don't like that. Why? Because taxes is nobody's favorite thing. <laughs> right? It's nobody's favorite thing to have somebody else say, oh, by the way, we passed like 300 new rules this year. Oh, great. Right? That's what we want. Nobody likes that. So it's hard work. 
It's hard work because we look at our world and we look at our part of the world and some of the absolute illogical arguments and thinking that is used in setting policy. Some of the inconsistent application of these bizarre standards people set and the foolishness with which they approach some things. And we go, ah! And it's hard to submit ourselves to that. And yet, we're called to. We're called to. We're called to, chapter 2, verse 10 says, so that in everything we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Because the name of Christ is at stake in how we respond in these given situations. And so he says, remind them to be submissive. Remind them to be ready for every good work. And we told you a couple weeks ago, this idea of good works is just right through, rippled right through this, this letter. Good works, be ready to do every good work, to serve our community. You see, there are those who profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, as he said in chapter 116. But followers of Christ are to be different. Because we know God, because we are, are, are forgiven, and because we're followers of Christ, we are to be active, zealous for every good work. That's what He wanted for us to do. And so we serve our community. Oh, man, that takes time and effort, and it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yet, I look around our church family, and I see people engaged in serving in our community. I mean, there's all kinds of examples of God's people who are saying, I'm going to do what I can. I can't do everything. But there is something that I can do. And so they engage with it. And so people volunteer with the, the, the Crisis Pregnancy Center, helping young women and men in, in a situation they just don't know how to handle and protecting the unborn in the process. There are people who, who serve in the bunkhouse, encouraging men from other countries who have left family and friends behind to come and work here, encouraging them, connecting with them, and teaching them the Word of God in the process. There are people who just serve with Meals on Wheels, making sure shut-ins and seniors get dinner. People who serve on the fair board just to, to go out there with one of these big, the, the biggest event that happens in our community and we're going to be a part of it and we're going to help out and participate. People who coach sports, people who serve at the food bank, people who quietly and unknown to others just go around and shovel somebody's driveway in the winter or make sure that person gets to that appointment because they have no ride. And it's just these things where people are serving behind the scenes, serving community. Why? Because we're God's people. Zealous for good works, ready to do the good work He puts in front of us. And when there's an opportunity and there's something that I can do, oh, Lord, this is a way to help somebody else and honor you in the process. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. So He reminds them of these things. It's hard work, but it's good. It's hard work to submit ourselves, but it's right. He says in verse 2 that we're supposed to show courtesy. This word that's translated speak evil of no one, speak evil, it's the word that has the same root to it as the word blasphemy, to blaspheme. It means cursing someone, slandering someone, treating someone with complete contempt. There's never a righteous motive behind that, right? And so he says we can't do that. We can't do that. Instead, we are to show perfect courtesy towards our friends. Is that what it says? towards people who extend absolute courtesy to us first. Is that what he says? 
We are to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Wow. Is that easy? Piece of cake? You ever struggle with that? There's days I struggle with that. Oh, man. Wow. When I have to deal personally with what I perceive to be arrogance and unethical and crazy illogical actions of a major telecommunications company (laughs) and I'm on the phone for how long? Just to get somebody that can follow some logic for a while and let's just walk through this together? That's not good for my blood pressure or my sanctification. You had those conversations? And yet, what are we supposed to do? Treat all people with perfect courtesy. When we're interacting with different government agencies, some of which openly and aggressively mock mock believers, mock the church, and work against the mission of the church and Scripture, but then turn around and say, well, we need your help with this. And you want to go, pardon? (laughs) And you want to have that conversation. And again, the blood starts to go and you go, okay, just a second. Perfect courtesy towards all people. This can be hard work, can't it? Yeah. But we have to understand that it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about doing what he wants. It's about doing what he does. And it's about guarding his reputation in the process. What did Paul say all the way through chapter 2? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So that we're not getting in the way of people's view of the gospel. That is so important. And so he says we have to show perfect courtesy to all people. Inside the church, we need to treat each other with courtesy. Outside of the church, the same thing. Inside our homes, we need to treat people with courtesy. Outside, the same thing. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, if someone is trapped in sin, those who are spiritual should come alongside and restore them how? Gently. Why? Because it's a rescue mission. And you're trying to help them out and away from this. Over back in 2 Timothy 2, Paul would later write to Timothy, that he was to correct his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Those inside and outside, we are to respond in such a way that God still has room to work because we haven't created such a mess with our attitude and our interactions. Hard work to show courtesy all the time when somebody else isn't dishing it out, isn't it? But this act of humility, this heart of humility, this is what we're to do. Four, verse three, starts with the word for. We ourselves were once foolish. He says, remember, when you look at the world outside you, whether it's people you're interacting with personally or whether it's the leaders and rulers and those that you're to submit to, whoever it is, remember in your frustration and, and everything else as you look at them and evaluate this, remember This was us. We were there. We too walked with our minds darkened in our understanding as enemies to God, doing our own things, living in rebellion to Him in the futility of our thinking. We were trapped right there. And apart from the mercy and grace of God, 
we'd still be there. We would still be thinking and living and acting this way. And so we walk in humility towards people, submitting to the authorities, showing courtesy to people regardless of how they treat us, because we've been there. And we know that that would still be us, apart from Jesus. And so it can be hard work, this life of humility. It's not always easy. But it is always right as we obey and honor God. When you're tired, in the process of following Jesus and doing things His way and responding to the authorities and people around you, when you're tired of trying to get someone you're trying to bring along and disciple in their walk with Jesus to help them learn these things and you're sick of reminding them and all that kind of thing, Friends, just carry on. Carry on for the good of the gospel and the glory of God in humility because it's not about us. It's all about Him. Paul moves on then to this attitude of humility, to this attitude of holiness. But, verse 4, and but is one of those little hinge words. Everything changes now. Everything turns on this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul moves from this attitude of humility to holiness. He says, that was us, and so we walk in humility, understanding that was us, but it's not us any longer. And so we can't just look back at where we've been. We need to move forward and follow in Jesus. See, the gospel changed everything for us, did it not? The gospel either changes everything or it changes nothing. The gospel has changed everything for us. And so in this reference to humility, back in in verse 5, he says, remember, God didn't save us because of our righteous deeds. In his mercy and grace, he saved us despite of who we are and what we've done, not because of it. So remember that. We did not deserve or earn this, but in His mercy and grace, He rescued us. And what did He do? He calls us to live in holiness. He washed us. He cleansed us of His sin, of our sin, rather. He cleansed us of our sin. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, He cleansed us of our sin. He renewed us and gave us new life. And now if anyone's in Christ, He is new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so we have been, this, this idea of holiness means to be set apart. God is holy. He is separate. He is in his own category. And to holiness, sanctification, being made holy, is to be set apart with him. To, to be in his category now. Not to be equal with him, but to walk in his ways. And so this idea of holiness means we've been set apart by God at salvation. We've been set apart to God. That's our sanctification as we continue to surrender self and choices and decisions and walk with Him and become like Him as we walk along here and into eternity. 
So we're set apart by God at salvation. We're set apart to God through our sanctification. And we're set apart for God's purposes. That's our service. Verse 8 says, We must then, having believed in God, be careful to devote ourselves to good works. Why? Because that's what He's called us to do, to come and to serve. And so we devote ourselves to good works not to earn our salvation, not to earn God's favor, not to earn God's forgiveness, but rather we devote ourselves to good works because we have experienced and been granted and given mercy, forgiveness, and God's favor. It's a response of, of, of gratitude and joy that we surrender to Him and serve this way. Again, this idea of good works just sprinkled throughout this letter. We're told about those false teachers who say they know God, but by their works they deny Him. And they're unfit for any good work. They're, just, they're not accomplishing anything of value. But instead, the rest of the letter, he says, we need to be focused on teaching what is good and on doing good works. Why? Again, because God, in verse 14 of chapter 2, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We're to help others as a testimony of the gospel. Because this is who I am, this is what I do. And it can be hard doing good works, can't it? Serving others and teaching others to do good works, it can be hard. Why? Because we're tired. And because we've got so many other things that we could be doing. And if I do this, it means I can't do that. And I want to do that. I should probably do this. <laughs> and we fight those battles, and, and it's difficult. And sometimes this work of doing good works and walking in holiness is not noticed by others. We say, well, nobody appreciated that. Or it doesn't seem to happen very fast. Or it doesn't seem to be overly productive in working in somebody else's life right now. As we serve with others, it can be time-consuming, energy-zapping, and costly. As we consider our own walk with God, to bring our own lives into line with this, self-denial is difficult. But we look and say, this is who I was, and so I need to walk in humility. But this is who I am, and so now I need to walk forward in holiness. And those can both be difficult, but wow, are they necessary. And as I learn that and as I grow in that, I can now pass that on to the generations coming behind me and say, I know this doesn't seem like it'll be worth it right now, but trust me, trust me. Walking with God His way always is worth it. And it will bring glory to Him it will shape you to be more like Christ and it will help you to shine and hold up with integrity the gospel in this community. So walk in humility and walk in holiness and we bring them along, we bring them along. And as we have these two attitudes in our hearts, Paul sums things up as he winds it down by warning Titus. Titus, there are a couple of traps and distractions that are so prevalent and so easily stepped into by the church. Verse 9, he says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. He speaks of the third attitude of being unity. And he says, avoid these, shun, refuse these, these foolish controversies. How much time and energy has been wasted over the centuries, and even in our own hearts and lives, 
as we waste that time and energy having it all eaten away and gobbled up because we've embroiled ourselves in foolish controversies. Rather than focusing on growing in godliness in my own heart and life, helping someone else grow in godliness as they follow Jesus and reaching out together with the gospel. If we focused on those things and avoided all this other nonsense, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we bring more glory to God and have made more progress? But we tend to get our, 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 little, our little issues and then we're focusing on that. Well, I think we should always and only teach on this. What? There's a whole lot more in here than just this one thing. We have to be so careful about this. We've got to stay focused. And when he talks about this, he talks about genealogies and quarrels about the law. That ties right back into chapter 1, verse 10, where he talked about the false teachers who were talking about the circumcision group, trying to turn people into Jews instead of into Christians. And they were doing it for their own personal gain, their own ego, their own status, and building themselves up within the body and collecting followers to themselves. They were promoting and defending themselves and damaging the body in the process. This past week, the Toronto Blue Jays were playing, I believe it was Boston, and um, Russell Martin was up at bat. He had a little bit of an exchange with the pitcher, and he was up at bat, and this pitcher proceeded to take a, a fastball and hit him with it. And so as he took his base and walked to first base, there, was, there were some words exchanged. Uh, not that long later, pitcher Danny Barnes was brought in for, to pitch for Toronto, and Boston was up at bat. And the catcher threw the ball out, and he looked at the ball, and he looked at the batter, and he wound up, and he nailed him. And he hit him. He went, ha, I defended my team. We defended ourselves. We got even. We stood up for ourselves. And ha, and he put that guy on first base. The next batter came up and proceeded to hit a two-run home run. Oh, you defended yourself. Oh, you got even. But you hurt your team in the process. <laughs> Was it really worth it? Was it really worth it? And Paul says, Titus, you've got to stay away from these things because they'll just suck you into a, a, a spiral of things that just will take all your time, all your energy, and all your joy, and it won't, it won't accomplish anything. He then says in verse 10 and 11, for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. He's got his own little world where he's sitting on the throne and he won't let anybody else in. And he is caught up there and he's determined to not listen to anything else, any words of wisdom or righteousness or rebuke. He's self-condemned. People will eventually see him for what he is. You've got to let him go and just move on. See, this is somebody that loves to argue. They're always looking for an argument, always starting self-centered rivalries. Now, at times, as leaders... We are drawn into conflict and confrontation because we need to be. First Timothy, or sorry, Titus chapter 1, verse 11 said what? These false teachers must be silenced. Verse 13, rebuke them sharply. There are times where for the sake of someone's walk with God, for the sake of proclaiming the truth and the health of the body, things need to be dealt with. But we don't do that because we love to, and as soon as that's done, let's find another 
That's not our heart and our attitude. It's not to cause division and create a problem. And that's what he says here. There are people out there like that, Paul, Paul says. So Titus, don't get sucked into that. Don't get sucked into that. Stand for truth. Walk with me. Call others to walk with me. Share the gospel and carry on. And so he says, out there, don't argue with people. You're not going to accomplish anything. It's pointless. Just share the gospel. And in here, are you divisive, always looking for self-centered rivalries or an argument? Then Paul says, your heart's showing. Just don't. Don't. Don't make yourself the issue because you are not the issue. I am not the issue. Jesus is the issue. The gospel is the issue. And that brings us back to this idea of humility, holiness, and unity. Unity can be hard work, can't it? Can't it? Are there any parents in the room? <laughs> yeah, Unity can be hard work, can't it? But it's worth it. Max Lucado tells the story that when he was nine, his father took him on a fishing trip. And he was able to bring his best friend along. And so the three of them were going to go fishing, and they packed up the truck, and they loaded up all their camping equipment, everything else they were going to need, and off they went. And a couple hours out from their destination, the sky got dark. And the big drops started to fall, and it just didn't let up. And so they got to their campsite, and they had to set everything up in the pouring rain. Well, how much fun's that? Are we having a good time yet, right? Uh, who's going to cook supper now? Uh, sleeping in the nice, damp sleeping bags. Isn't that just fun? Sitting in this tent as it rained and rained and rained. And the next day, when the boys got up early, it said, okay, and he said, Dad, let's go fishing. He said, no, it's not, it's not that it's just raining. It's storming. There's no way we can't go fishing. Look at our little boat. Look at the lake. There's, it's not going to happen. And so what did they do? They sat there, and they played the one game they'd brought along over and over and over again all day, all evening, into the second day. On the morning of the third day, he said, my best friend, the guy I could never spend enough time with, we sat beside each other in every class at school, we spent every free moment together, we, we played all evening, we hung out all weekend, I, I just love this guy, he's my best friend. By the third day, I wanted to strangle him. <laughs> Everything he did was annoying. <laughs> we're cramped in this tiny little place, and we're tired, and we're frustrated, and we're not doing what we came to do, and we're here, and now we start looking at each other a little differently, and getting out the microscope and saying, why do you do that? Why do you swallow that way? Why do you chew like that? He said, everything was just an annoyance. He said, we were ready to strangle each other. And finally, the sun came out. He said, the next morning, the sun came out. My dad got us up as early as he could, out into the boat, and within 10 minutes, we were best friends. We were laughing. We loved each other. We were having a great time. We were out there fishing. Max Licato says, here, here is the lesson for the church. When fishermen don't fish, they fight. Just watch the deadliest catch and see what goes on there when they're not catching anything. When fishermen don't fish, they fight. When we take our eyes off of what we're there to do, put them on each other, it never turns out well. But if we're focused on what we're here to do and we're partnering in that together, oh, there's great joy in that, isn't there? As God knits our hearts together in the process. Humility, holiness, and unity. Those three attitudes as we serve together to be disciples who make disciples, we'll go a long way, a long way 
to shining the light of the gospel in this community. Are you ready? It's hard work. It's hard work in here. It's hard work when we're working with someone else to bring them along. But it's always worth it. It's always worth it. So, on days where you're getting tired and the stalls seem exceptionally dirty, just remember, um, without an ox, you have a nice clean stall. But without an ox, you've got an empty barn. The process and the inconvenience and the work is worth it. Amen. Father, we love you and we want to walk with you well. We want to walk with you well together. Would you continue to just stir in our hearts, keep us focused on honoring you, sharing the gospel, being and making disciples of Jesus Christ along the way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.